Well, hello and, w- hello and welcome to the Pastoral Thoughts Podcast. This is your host, Jack Young. Uh, today in the office, I have one of my friends. I've known him for uh, quite a while now, and that is Silas Nacklick. And he has been off in California, hard to believe, for five years as a student. Yep, so far, five years. All right. And he is a professional student right now. He is an he is a uh, graduate student. And he has got a full scholarship to his seminary that he's going to. And so we're very proud of him that way. Him and I um, knew each other from the North Country when I pastored First Baptist Church of Black River. Uh, his dad also is a pastor there in, in the town of Watertown. Watertown? What's, what's the name of your dad's church? Yeah, it's Maranatha Bible Baptist. That's right, Maranatha Bible Baptist. Uh, but Brother Silas would come over to our church on Wednesday nights for Wednesday night Bible study, and so he'd be there for the service. Then him and I a lot of times would talk for an hour afterwards, and uh, he was uh, heading off to school way back then, and uh, he went off, went off to um, Bible college. He actually uh, was in Israel for a semester. Yep, it's a three-month program, basically an extension of the college. And it's about eight miles from Jerusalem, so you really got the best of both worlds. You got the academics, but you also got the field study and uh, just how the gospel looks practically in uh, Israeli life. So it was a great experience. I had someone ask me Sunday about going to Israel and what that was like, and I tried to explain it. Uh, How do you explain it to people? Well, it depends on uh, your reason for being there, your objective, your goals. If it's more of a sightseeing type uh, of situation, then you're really going to get a lot out of it. Uh, I've heard people say there's no wrong way to go to Israel, and Mm -hmm. I think that's true. But in my case, it was more of an academic pursuit. It was a three-month, very vigorous program where you had exams, reports that you had to write. So there wasn't a lot of time to really sit back and sometimes take it all in spiritually, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just because it was so much uh, academically. But looking back on it, it was a great experience. It stretched me. It gave me kind of an academic edge. So when I came back, I had seen the places I was reading about. And, uh, you know, I had seen the culture. I had, you know, spent time with the Bedouin kind of understanding about what uh, the Middle East is like, just how different it is. And you kind of understood the Bible through Eastern eyes. Yeah. Um, very much so. My wife and I went there in 2007 for 10 days and, um, it was amazing. And, you know, you almost hate to tell people how good it is because you, you think that, um, they think that they're missing something in life if they don't go there. Uh, but don't worry, you'll, uh, you might end up in the new Jerusalem and never see the old Jerusalem. That's fine. Um, but when we were there, it was just amazing just as you look at scripture and look at these different places whether you're at mount beatitudes and you're standing there and realize how far away it's like a natural amphitheater uh there is the lord is speaking as and as he's saying things like as a sower went forth to sow there's probably a sower somewhere in he could have pointed to while he was preaching i remember we were there looking at the sea of galilee one night and it was near capernaum and um there was a town up on the hill, and it was lighting up as it was getting dusky. And the guide said, uh, now that town up there has been there for over 2,000 years. When Jesus was standing here, he said this, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. He most likely pointed to that city right there. And you're thinking, wow, um, being at Caiaphas's hall and seeing that, did you go in that hall outside, they've got the 
Rooster. Yeah, we <laughs> They've saw got it. the rooster in stone. You know, there you can see the actual rooster that crowed. Not really. But uh, but you can go on Caiaphas's Hall, and you can see that there's like a little dugout pit where um, most likely if you were on trial, you would have been in that pit. And so remember, a tour guide getting down in that pit, and this, you know, if Jesus was on trial, um, most likely he would have been in that pit. And he was at Caiaphas's Hall. Um, and so the the tour guide gets down into the pit. There's not enough room for all of us, but there's room for one prisoner. So the um, the tour guide gets down in there and starts reading from the Psalms. And it was like you could see Jesus quoting these Psalms. Yea, my friend, mine own familiar friend hath forsaken me. He has lifted up his heel against me. And he's reading these Psalms so moving. It was amazing being there. And uh, it felt like you were seeing the Bible like in three-dimensional, high-definition color, whether you're in the garden tomb. And I don't know, like some of the stuff they tell you, you're thinking, I don't know about this. But, you know, you go through the Garden of Gethsemane, and they say, these olive trees have been here for 2,000 years. These olive trees heard the voice of the Son of God as he prayed to his heavenly Father in this garden. And you're, it's still, whoa, it's a very weighty experience. So you got to be there for three months. Yeah, we really got to take our time with things that normally would have been rushed. Uh, we spent eight days in Galilee alone. So otherwise, that probably would have been a one-day thing if you had gone on a two-week tour. So, yeah, basically we did everything that you would do on a two-week tour from mm -hmm. your church, but with a lot more time to take it in and to analyze it. And we even got to uh, help out with a little bit of uh, archaeological excavation. So that was fun. Yes. Just, just for experience sake. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, probably my biggest takeaway from going to Israel is that the Bible took place with real people in real time in real history. And it sounds basic, but sometimes we think of, you know, the Bible as some category to itself. We think of Bible times as opposed to just understanding it's so it. disconnected and it was such a, right. you know, in a land far away, yeah. far, far away sure. um, type thing. And you're there. I remember being in Caesarea Philippi. I'm sure you're at that location, but there's a dugout where, um, well, in Galilee, a lot of Greeks were there. There would have been some sort of Greek temple, and you can see a dugout out of the rock. And then there is, in that rock face in Caesarea Philippi, um, there is a cave, and out of that cave is a flowing stream. And so the Greeks believed that was the River Styx, and you cross that river, the, you know, death, you cross the River Styx and all this, and this was the gate of hell. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is where the Lord said to Peter, who do, who do uh, men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Um, you know, so it goes down through the litany. Some say John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, or Elias, or um, whom do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so before all of these, um, all these false gods, they're at the Greek temple. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they says, um, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you, but my Father which art in heaven, thou art Peter, upon this rock, and he's standing in front of this huge rock, but upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, right there is the river Styx, yeah. <laughs> the gates of hell, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, and again, it's surreal to be there and read these portions of Scripture and just look at, I mean, again, it's like 3D, 4D, Bible in color, 
you see the background, you learn the manners, you learn the custom, and and it's um it's amazing. Yeah, makes it seem like very very close, not like a place far removed from us. Yeah, it's true because we all have a picture in our head of what the Bible looks like, but we've probably received that picture from a movie or maybe something that we read um, that was, you know, or maybe a movie that was filmed in Italy or something. That's what you're picturing. Flannel graph board. Sure. (laughs) Sunday school. Yeah. 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 So when I got to the Sea of Galilee, I was surprised by how small it is. I mean, it's really just a lake. Yeah. But in movies, you see it as this big, huge, you know, body of water that you can't even see over to the Mm -hmm. other side. That's not the way that it is at all. No. Um, so you just get a, a perspective for how small Israel is. It is. It's very small. Quick people could have gotten from place to mm-hmm. place. Bethlehem only like, I don't know, I think eight miles south of Jerusalem. So you could see Jerusalem from Bethlehem. Well, definitely from you know a lot of different places, depending on how high the elevation mm-hmm. is. You can look out and you can see you know various cities all in one vantage point. Uh, so it's just, it's very different than living in the United States, you know, where you drive across Texas, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, Israel is about relatively the size of New Jersey. Yeah. So small. Very uh, small. Uh, so it's just a blast to put the Bible into, you know, an actual, you know, vantage point. That's not some preconceived idea that I conjured up from books and movies, but yeah, something that's actually reality. Yes. And then, um, to open up the word of God, like, you know, um, and, and see all the archaeological and historical references that have been, uh, you know, back time and time and time again. I mean, anything that took place in the Bible that you can point to the area where it took place. And again, it's all in pretty close proximity to each other. And then even futuristic events. If you're there in Israel, you can go down to um, the Valley of Megiddo where the, uh, well, Armageddon is going to someday take place. And, um, you know, Napoleon saw the Valley of Megiddo and said all the armies of the world could fit in this one valley. Well, someday that'll happen. Um, So that is fascinating. Well, today on the podcast, we're going to talk about um, studying the Bible in two different ways. One for personal uh, edification, and then secondly, for um, for others, studying the Bible for others, not just yourself, uh, but studying for, let's say, a Sunday school class or a sermon or something like this. And uh, and and uh, Brother Silas, even before he went off to Bible college, he was a teacher of the Bible and helped out his dad there in church and door to door soul owner to the whole nine yards. And so we're going to talk about studying the Bible. What's your thoughts? Um, what's your thoughts on Bible study? Well, yeah, it depends on what your objective is. So if it's for personal Bible study, then you know, obviously there has to be you know, a technical side to it, um, and then there has to be a spiritual aspect to it. And I think without the spiritual reality um, behind your Bible study, it's nothing more than an academic pursuit. Mm-hmm. I mean, all throughout the, the Gospels, we see the Pharisees who you know, were, were good doctrinally. They were the conservatives of the time. Mm-hmm as opposed to the more liberal Sadducees. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had their theological um, beliefs in order and Mm -hmm. systematized. Um, But inward, they were what Jesus referred to as whitewashed tombs. So without the spiritual reality, then it's just a facade and it's a type of pseudo-study. And even today, uh, these Hasidic Jews and these fundamentalists, um, the Judaism, they're very serious about knowing... 
scripture. And I think a lot of these rabbis and things could take uh, preachers like myself to task, particularly anywhere in the Old Testament. Um, but as the Lord said, they have blinders on their eyes. Uh, so, yeah, so Bible study is not an academic pursuit primarily. Right. I mean, there's definitely an academic side to it, um, you know, where the scripture does have a specific structure. Mm-hmm. It is using specific language. The author is trying to actually say something. And part of what we're supposed to do with Bible study or part of our objective is to try to figure out uh, why he said what he said and what the context was, what prompted him to say it. And then ultimately, how can I take principles that are universal right. and then apply them to my life? Right. Who is he speaking to and what did it mean to them? Right. Who he's speaking So number one, the aspect would be is for personal edification. And we see that in the Bible again and again. You know, uh, we're doing the Ten Commandments on Sunday night. uh, And the principle of take heed to yourself, um, it comes from Deuteronomy. Before you can ever help anybody else, you better take heed to yourself. And so you better take the word of God, which you are reading, and apply that word of God to yourself. And, um, you know, if someone gets saved, the... The primary thing that you teach them, whether it's in the jail, and we were talking earlier about uh, people, most American society, they um, are biblically illiterate. They've never read the Bible for the first time. So how do we help these people? Uh, they've never read Job. They've never read Palms or any of those other books. <laughs> I was telling Silas about this gal at the jail that uh, she started in Matthew. And so she started in the New Testament. It's a great place to start. And she, and she was reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and she wondered why Jesus kept on dying. I mean, four times he dies in the first four books, and and so um, you know we we have to help people, but the, but that are are saved. I always tell the people that if if someone's a newborn child in the kingdom of God, I say this is three different things that you that you need to do. Christian life is not easy, but it's simple. You need to read your Bible. That is number one because that's how God speaks to you. That's even more important than speaking to God because you don't know what to say to God until God first speaks to you. Uh, and so you got to read your Bible. You got to pray. So when God speaks to you, it's rude not to speak back to him. So you better, this, this is a book of communication. So as God speaks to you through his word, you better speak back. And then number three, you, you're a sheep. Where's the safest place for a sheep to be? And it's funny, get one or two answers. Either they'll say, with the shepherd, <laughs> And that's what we're getting at, yeah. Uh, but in the flock, uh, and say so you you have to congregate with um, like minded people, and of course in the church we learn scripture. Th- uh, we learn the scripture three different ways. We learn it from God, ourselves, and then other people. God uses other people to help us understand uh, the Word of God as well, and that's where the church plays in. And so studying the Bible, number one would be for personal edification spiritually, not just academically. Yeah, absolutely. They have to be jointed together. You can't really have one without the other. Otherwise, if it's spiritual without, you know, academic, then it's just going to be some sort of like osmosis where you're trying Mm -hmm. to receive something without, you know, putting in the necessary work. So, I mean, there's a both and, but the spiritual is definitely more important. There's no doubt about it. Amen. Spiritual edification. And so um, for, for personal Bible study, personal Bible use, um, what do you think is some different avenues that people could, could uh, go? Yeah, so it depends on how you're inclined. Uh, some people really enjoy writing. So 
I love using a journaling Bible because it has mm-hmm. a lot of white margin mm-hmm. and it gives me a lot of room to circle, to highlight, uh, just to bring attention to certain themes. Um, so I just, where did you get this journaling Bible? Well, at? Actually, I got it in California at Grace Community Church. They have a bookstore in there and it's a ESV journaling Bible. And basically the way it works is you have, you know, the column in the middle of the page, and then you mm-hmm. have lines on the sides that you can write in. I got one at Ollie's good stuff. Cheap. Yeah. That's they're great. Th- yeah. I love yeah, it. They, yeah. And so, um, the journaling Bible is made of, I don't know if yours is, but it's, it's made of cheaper paper? Actually, the paper is really good online, okay. so sometimes it does bleed through depending on what now pen I, you use. I have wide-margin uh, Bibles, and I've had some that I've filled up, and I use one for the pulpit, but those are, those are nicer. Right. Um, then I've gotten the journaling Bible. It's made out of thick journaling paper, and it's a little cheaper, and so I feel, easy, I feel more at ease about circling stuff with sure. the pen and writing notes off the side. But you're talking about a nice... Bible with nice thin, yeah, it's paper. nice. Okay. Yeah, probably twenty twenty five dollars. You could probably get one on Amazon, and it's just a way to interact with your reading. Instead of just reading through, you're you're taking note mm-hmm. of key themes. So if I'm reading through Genesis, I might circle every time I see the word seed mm-hmm. or offspring because it's pointing toward a, a theme that's major for understanding Genesis. So I'm just gonna. And so when you, when you have margins, you can write cross references in there. You can sure. um, you could write a little outline. You sure. can write little notes to yourself. I think um, one of the things you want to do because I do have the wide margin Bibles that I always make sure, and I've learned this through error, is you always write stuff that's going to make sense to you later on when you read it. Right? Yeah, ten years down the road, <laughs> you want you want them to make sense. Yeah, you you need more than just um, you know. John's story about the boy or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you have to have a little more detail about, you know, sometimes I write the date of mm-hmm. the sermon that I was listening to. Okay. For instance, if I'm in church and if I'm writing notes during a sermon, mm-hmm. um, I'll put the date on there where I was. And then if they have, you know, audio on their website, I might be able to go back in five mm-hmm. years and listen to that particular date. Hey Amen. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. And so you'd like to take notes in your Bible, which I think is an awesome practice. And then, um, uh, it, it helps you later on down the road. And then I think, too, if you read your Bible with a pen in hand, it puts your mind into a mental state of student. I'm trying to get something out of this, you know, as well as you're going along. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I mean, I've heard that studies have been done that show that when you write something as opposed to type it even, Mm -hmm. Um, that you remember it more. So even if you just write like the main points of the passage in your margin, you're probably going to remember more about that text. I've heard that too. I've heard it. If you write something out, it's like saying it out loud seven times. It's about that equivalent. Um, And I know like my wife, when she was going through pharmacy um, school, and I did this quite a bit in Bible college too, and I'll do this now with sermons. If you're writing out something, you'll just remember it uh, so much better. Something about your whole physical being. Uh, being involved. And I think for men in particular, there's something masculine. I can't speak to being a woman, but uh, there's something masculine about having a th- this tool in your hand and um, kind of taking ownership of what is in front of you. I was watching a preacher's panel, and it was actually out there. It was um Shepherd's Conference out there. And a bunch of these, it was like Al Muller and MacArthur and Bag and all these big name guys. Every single one of those guys, they all knew how to use, use a computer, uh, but yet they all handwrite mm-hmm. their sermons. 
Not one single one of them. There's like seven guys up there, and all um, real renowned preachers. They all handwrite their sermons, and mm-hmm. I think there's something to handwriting. So with taking notes too, um, you can you can use a notepad. Yeah, you definitely can. I mean, again, it depends on what type of a reader you are. If you're the type of reader who's constantly having you know creative thoughts that you want to you know jot down in your notebook, maybe they won't fit in your Bible. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it just depends on the person. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think just interacting with what you're reading yeah. is fundamental to Bible study. Yes. Once you get that step taken care of, everything else falls into place a lot easier. And I, uh, I, I go through phases in my Bible reading every once in a while, I'll get something like, um, a steno pad and then I'll just kind of, as I read, I'm jotting down and, and this is not for, um, this is not for, like anyone else's edification is for my edification that day. I'm not even looking at this notepad later. Um, but I, you know, as I know this morning I was reading through, uh, Luke and my Bible reading challenged very many places, but, um, at one particular stands up in my mind, uh, is that Jesus went up into a mountain to pray. So I'm thinking, um, that Christ, the son of God in his ministry spent a whole night in prayer. Like what a loser I am <laughs> in my prayer life, <laughs> you know. Uh, if he needed to pray, how much more do I need to pray? Um, and so, you know, with the steno pad, I wasn't using it this morning, but if I did, I'd put mountain to pray, something like that. And then when I'm done with my Bible reading, I can, I'll use that as my prayer list because I'm thinking that stuck out in my mind while I was reading, and I can go back through that and I can pray, Lord, help me in my prayer life. I need to spend more time. Help me to set time aside my schedule to pray. Um, and so you first off, devotionally and spiritually, we study the Bible. And then secondly, academically and um, systematically as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there has to be some you know, method that you're using of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I really think it comes down to, you know, um, you know what does the author say? What did he mean to say? Who is he saying it to? Mm-hmm. Understanding historical context. I mean, you don't want to go overboard and, with it. And, and, and yes. And, and so like going up in the mountain to pray, I'm not going to think, well, I need to find a mountain because if Jesus prayed in a mountain, I can't pray down here on, you know, at sea level. Um, and so people can come up to, or Joshua marched around the city, you know, seven times. Um, so I'm going to march around. I, I want God to give me Webster. So I'm going to march around Webster seven times or something like this. And so then here's, here's where what we would call, we're calling academics or systematic theology is involved because we do want to interpret the Bible according to its primary meaning. We don't want to allegorize or spiritualize something, uh, and make it to be something that it's not meant to be. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, just take Peter, for instance, in First Peter, where he calls the church elect strangers or aliens. Yeah. And yeah. they were undergoing intense persecution mm-hmm. uh, from the Roman Empire under mm-hmm. Nero. And uh, understanding that little piece of historical background, simply the intensity of persecution that was going right. on, um, really gives you a, a really 
good lens of understanding the entirety of the book, how we are not citizens of earth, but of heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that just makes all the difference in the world for, for Bible study. Right. And so if I, you know, if I find myself suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm reading Peter, I think, well, these, these folks were scattered out of Jerusalem. These people who uh, Peter ministered to face to face, they were his flock, his sheep. They're, they're scattered under persecution. Uh, and so I, I can understand that he's writing to persecuted believers in his day. Uh, how does that pertain to me specifically in the day and age in which I live? Yeah, because uh, even though, you know, first and second Peter were not written to us specifically, we're also the church, like mm-hmm. they were the church, mm-hmm. and God is still all sovereign, just like he was then. Mm-hmm. So everything theological and, and all of the exhortations and to be hopeful right? Uh, because of your inheritance that you're going to receive, all that stuff is still valid today. Yeah. 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 And I was talking to a good brother uh, the other day and he was talking about Hebrews uh, chapter number 10, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And, you know, he said, no, I believe the Hebrews is written to Hebrews. And I was like, well, yeah, I do too. Uh, but I, I know what he meant uh, in the fact that, you know, he was talking about, he was emphasizing uh, Jews by blood. Okay, and the Jewish people, and I do know that Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to continue on into better things, into the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was, uh, that Christ was their Sabbath, he was the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, Uh, but that does apply to me because I'm grafted into that Jewish vine. Um, And so where that not forsaking, he wasn't saying that not forsaking doesn't apply today, but he's saying that, you know, in the book of Revelation, you know, I believe that Hebrews was going to really apply to those Jews in Revelation. So they're going to be under tribulation and persecution. And so not forsaking, they're still supposed to uh, assemble themselves together someday later in, you know, the book of Revelation. I thought, yeah, but it was written to the, like, um, Peter's writing to those Hebrews scattered abroad, but I, I am an ancestor, not ancestor. I am a, what do you call it? They were our ancestors spiritually. We are what? Yeah, descendant. <laughs> Descendants of I had to think Jewish. for a second myself. I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> we just ate a big lunch. Forgive us. <laughs> so we, we are descendants spiritually out of them. So what was written to them, I believe, also applies to us. I'm not stealing any promises that pertain to the Jewish people genetically, uh, but all those spiritual promises of Abraham are applied to me. So we figure out who's written to, what did it mean to them, uh, and what does it mean for us today as well? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so next thing on the, on the, so we're read the Bible for ourselves, study the Bible for ourselves. Uh, any good equipment, any good tools for, for uh, studying scripture? I think of a concordance. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's good to have maybe one or two sources that you can use. Um, I mean, it depends, again, what your objective is. Mm -hmm. But I like to have one commentary that's pretty practical and pastoral alongside. So I love MacArthur's commentaries just Mm -hmm. because they are a little bit more practical, Mm -hmm. a little more pastoral. So if I have the text and if I have... You know, one commentary like that, it doesn't have to be MacArthur, it can be anybody, mm-hmm. um, a concordance, or, you know, we have a lot of Bible softwares today, like That's right. Lagos, Accordance. I love Accordance because everything is really there that I need. Okay. You know, I can even pull up the Greek or the Hebrew and glance at it if I want to, and if I don't want to, then I, I don't have yep. to. Yep, all the lexicons are right there, right at your fingertips. Right. Um, yeah, I use eSword 
and um, very interesting. It's very easy to look up stuff. Uh, you know, you got Bible encyclopedias you can look up. You can have um, uh, all sorts of dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, Webster's, 1828's on there. Uh, you can look at lexicons very quickly as well, and you can read commentaries. And I think it was like, you know, it's an app for Apple. It was like about 18, 19 bucks. <laughs> and it was like, you know, you think about the library you just purchase. For eighteen, nineteen dollars. I mean, we are living in the information age. So much is available at our fingertips, and so it is. It is nice. And what I use the Bible software the most for is for um, for concordance, mm-hmm. because a lot of times you'll, I'll think of a few words in a verse, and I'm like, man, I'm, I have no idea where that verse is. And right. It's so much faster than looking in a concordance. Oh, yeah. Type those few words in, boom, and search and. Uh, they're right up there, and I can find scriptures really easily uh, that way. I'll tell you something funny that happened. Um, we have teen small groups on Sunday. And so one of the teenagers came in, and uh, the lesson was on peace. And so the teacher, John uh, Major, he does a great job. He gives everybody a handout for the next week, and they just fill out the handout, answer like three or four questions. And these three or four questions were on peace, and that's what the discussion was going to be about. That's what his lesson was going to be about. Uh, and so <laughs> this, one, this one teenager came in late, and he sat down right next to me. I'm in that group just for because I'm about as mature as a 13-year-old, so I go to the teen group. and uh, But John leads it. I don't lead it. So we're going around a circle answering questions, and it's on peace. So the guy sat right next to me, a teenage fella, and he looks in the back of his concordance because he, he didn't do his homework. And so he's going to answer the question. And, um, and so he looks up peace, and then I can see him turn into the verse real quick, and that comes to him. I can't remember what the question was other than it was on peace. And so he reads his verse real quick. He didn't, he just looked at peace. Then he grabbed the verse, opened up his Bible into Proverbs. And the verse was, uh, by means of a whorish woman, shall a man be brought to a piece of bread. <laughs> and I about rolled off the couch. Uh, he looked up the wrong piece. Piece, yeah. piece of red, not yeah. uh, piece that passes understanding. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was very funny. But he looked it up real quick in his concordance. He knew where that concordance was at. Uh, and so some of your Bibles out there, they will have the concordance right in the back for you. It's going to be minimal concordance, though. Um, my kid's Sunday school teacher does a fabulous job. But she, I don't know where, she got all the kids' concordances. And, I mean, they're like the old school, big, strong. You could kill somebody with this, like a weapon, like a 20-pound book. Strong's concordance. And she gives them homework to look up in the concordance. And, um, of course, the saying is, I think it's very true, the best commentary in the Bible is the Bible. And uh, we are to compare Scripture with Scripture, so that's a great way Great way to study. Great tool. So, yeah, have a nice commentary. There's a lot of standard bearers out there. And, um, and so get a nice commentary. If you can, get a computer software program. And then also um, get a, get yourself a nice concordance. So next, we're going to study for somebody else. So in the Bible, there's a principle. You take heed to yourself, and then you take heed to the flock of God. So what do you recommend for coming up with your on Sunday school or sermon or what? 
Yeah, well, first of all, it depends on who your audience is. So if you're teaching, you know, uh, kindergartners, it's going to be a lot different than teaching the adult Sunday school class or even uh, a teen class. Uh, it doesn't mean that the truths and the principles change according to who you're talking to. You're not trying to you know, entertain or, you know, put something in that doesn't belong simply to make your message appeal more, but you're just being conscious of maybe particular, you know, struggles that, you know, a particular age group might be going through. Um, and you might put things in a different way for different people, um, or even just their spiritual maturity. So mm -hmm. it has a person been saved for a year or for 20 years mm -hmm. or for 40 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to talk to all of those demographics yeah. differently. Yeah. So once you acknowledge who your audience is, then you can get into, you know, the different methods that there's, you might there's use. There's a principle there of shepherding. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, as Peter, Peter was told, feed my sheep. And, um, it says in Proverbs, know the state of your flocks. So you should know the people that you are speaking to or get to know them to the best possible ability. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, just by talking to people in, in each, in each church, each congregation has a different dynamic, has different needs is a different area of the country and um, different personalities, and like you're saying, different levels where this person is at. And then there's a challenge of, um, I think, like, you know, like, for instance, on Sunday morning, you're going to have to explain stuff to people who have never opened up the Bible before. And then you're also, at the same time, you're going to feed them, so you have to try to explain stuff to you, to someone who's not biblically illiterate, or that's not biblically literate, I should say, and then also you're trying to feed mature believers or you're teaching uh, preschoolers. And so you're at a whole different level with preschoolers and um, whatever theme you're going to. So you're preparing for a particular um, particular group of people. Now, uh, Silas and I were talking to lunch. You know, I, I don't know who said this, uh, but it's true. There's three different worlds when you speak. There's the world of the Bible. So you have to go back in the world of the Bible and who was being spoken to, what did it mean to them? So if it's Peter, he's writing to a persecuted church that was scattered out of Jerusalem. They're all the way from home. They're all the way from their pastor, Peter. And so he's writing to a persecuted church. That's the world of the Bible. Then there's the present day world. And so this is the world which we live in right now, 2020 pandemic world, um, the world with, you know, cell phones and, you know, computers and everything else. And then there is the third world, which is the specific world, which would be your Sunday school class, um, the person you're discipling, if you're going through discipleship material with somebody, or if you're preaching to a congregation, your specific congregation. Because one sermon might work in one congregation, but it's not going to minister to a different congregation because there's different uh, people are at different levels with different personalities. So number one, know your and know your flock. Then, then where do you go? Yeah, I mean, after you know that. So, say for instance, you know, I've discovered that I'm talking to you know maybe a, a fully adult group. So I know that they probably have you know better theological chops. So I know I can probably you know spend you know a couple of minutes on you know a little bit of background if I'm preaching. I'm never gonna do background for more than a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. Like even if I were preaching First Peter all you'd really have to say is that they were undergoing intense persecution under Nero. Maybe talk about the fact that there was a fire that uh, the Christians were blamed for, but that Nero himself 
probably started. Um, I mean, that's really all they need to know. And mm-hmm. then um, everything in the book is to address, you know, the idea that we have a hope that goes beyond this life, even though there's intense persecution. And those principles are still the same today. Absolutely. So now I can say in 2020, for instance, how, let's say, for instance, your business has to be closed down, you know, because of the lockdowns and you can't make a living. Um, so how do the truths in First Peter that we have a, a transcendent hope, um, you know, speak to that issue? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are we thinking of things just temporarily? Uh, or are we thinking, you know, through like an eternal lens? Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be the same if you speak to children as well, but it's going to be a lot more down to earth. You know, I might pick like four truths from First Peter 1 mm-hmm. uh, and then just hone in on those for like 10 minutes. And I would say too, I mean, you've, spoke, you've, you've spoken to both children and adults. I'd say it's just as hard and should be prepared. Children's lessons should be prepared for just as much as adults. And in some sense, um, it's going to be harder for you as an adult to speak to children because you have to, if you're not used to it, you have to get into their world and think about what they're going through. What's their temptation going to be? Um, how does this principle apply to a third grader? And, and so, um, you know, I've, when we used to have, um, once a month on, on Sundays, we'd have the, the, our teachers would all get together. And I say to them, I said, you know, if I fell over dead, you should be able to get up in front of the adults and give your Sunday school lesson and not have to be that embarrassed because you are prepared. And so you should be as prepared to give your Sunday school lesson as I am to preach this sermon on Sunday. It's every bit as important. And it the same amount of work should have went into it as well. Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, the language you're going to use is going to be different. Mm-hmm. So if I were speaking on First Samuel or Second Samuel chapter 7 with the, the Davidic covenant, mm-hmm. I'm not going to start talking about the, the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and continuity yeah. of theology in the Bible. Yeah. But I'm just going to say that God is making a promise to David, you know, that he's going to carry out his mm-hmm. plan for our lives. And uh, that's exactly what it's yeah. about. So you're just bringing it down to earth. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking to a more, you know, uh, mature group, then you can take it a little bit deeper. Yeah. And so like if you're preaching in a jail or a nursing home or something, you know, you're not going to uh, make um, talk about redemption without explanation because they think that you're um, talking about taking your cans of Coke yeah. back to, you know, back to the store and get your uh, deposit back or um, you're not going to s- just throw something out there like the rapture and just refer to it like people know what in the world the rapture is. Uh, and so, yeah, you determine who you're speaking to. And then um, I think most of us probably um, are guilty of not take start to speaking Christian jargon and really not explaining it. And I think also that if we explain truths that the believers in the pew, like they've heard of the um, redemption, propitiation, the blood of Christ purchased our salvation. But if they if they hear these things explained in a simple way, even though they're mature Christians, it's going to help them be able to articulate it as they share it with other people as well. Um, and so this, you know, so so preparing a a lesson or um, preparing to disciple somebody or preparing a sermon, you know, it's a big task at hand. Yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely I found 
in speaking to children, just asking a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So if I say first Peter one again, if I say, um, does anybody know what persecution is? Mm -hmm. And then they can say, well, I think persecution means this. And then you can say, okay, thank you, Tommy. You know, and then you can kind of make your point off of that. Yes. It keeps them engaged rather mm -hmm. than just me talking for 10 minutes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I think on a practical level, what are some practical things? We're preparing a lesson and let's say it's Monday. It's not really Monday. It's Tuesday. Um, and you just taught yesterday and you're teaching this coming Sunday. What... Um, what does your week look like getting ready for yeah, well, the lesson or so the sermon? Like if I'm preaching, say, for instance, a Sunday a.m., what does my week look like? Essentially, I'm going to start with reading the text because that's foundational. Mm -hmm. uh, it may sound a little elementary, but it's amazing how many students just jump right into trying to observe things about the text without actually reading the entire text first. Continuously, yeah. But not only just the text, but the entire book that the text is in. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's easy if I start at the beginning of a book, if I'm preaching from Romans 1, 1 through 16. Yeah. That's a lot easier than starting in chapter 4. Because right. then now you have to backtrack and you have to explain one through Lay three. foundation, what's going on in four. If you, yeah, if you divorce four from the rest of the book, you're in trouble because it, it's not going to, you're not going to be preaching what it means. That's exactly right. Um, so if you're in the habit of preaching sequentially where you're just going through a book mm -hmm. for, you know, a year or so, um, then you don't have that problem so much because you've already you know, laid the groundwork and you're mm -hmm. just moving forward. Mm -hmm. But if you're parachuting in someplace, then you have to do a little bit more work. Yeah. Um, but that just depends. G. Campbell Morgan said that he would never preach out of a book one time without having read that book at least 50 times. <laughs> because, and here's a brilliant man, but he wanted to get the flow of the book before he brought a message out of that book. He wanted to know uh, the meaning. So you have to get the overview of the book that you're in. Uh, so read that through. And then, like you said, if you read that text again and again and again, um, it, it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving. It's going to keep on unfolding as you read it. I mean, of course, the, the Scripture is a marvelous, uh, mir miraculous book. And so read the text. Yeah, because things jump out at you. Mm -hmm. um, there's Just like in music, there's a, like a melodic line mm -hmm. uh, throughout a song. There's kind of a melodic line laced throughout a book. Absolutely. Um, that's informing everything that takes place. So really, if you can figure out what the main point of a book is yeah. and then read every passage through the lens of that main point, yeah. then you're going to do very well for yourself. Yeah. My um, my dad gave me a big binder. It's not a three-ring binder. It's like a eight or something. It's a lot of binder, but it's the Bible and it's in pages and it's just paper pages that can come out of the binder. And so if I'm preaching through uh, a lesson, I will have, um, I will have that piece of paper in my notebook. And so I can just keep read it and I can just circle key phrases and emphasis, draw stuff out to the side. But uh, yeah, you continually look at that text and that's where I would start on Monday um, or better yet, if you, your lesson's on Sunday and you just got done teaching it, I mean, Sunday afternoon, read over the text for the next Sunday. As somebody said, water flows best downhill. Meaning this, as you know, if you're looking at a text and you're feeding yourself from it and you're thinking about it throughout the week, stuff's just going to flow down to you throughout the week as you go. Uh, but you make the big mistake of thinking, well, I'll study Saturday night. 
Now, myself personally, I would never, ever do that. I just, I'm not built that way. I'm sure some, some people could um, do it. Now, they say Spurgeon used to do this, but here was the thing. He would study a theme all week long yeah, and would. immerse himself in it. Then, on Saturday night, he would pick out a text, and he would go with that text. But I think for us mere humans, mere mortals, who are non, not Spurgeon, uh, yeah, we're going to have to start on Monday. Yeah, everybody's a little bit different, mm-hmm. but for me, um, I relax a little bit more when I know I have a little more time. Mm-hmm. And some of those initial steps, like reading the text and things, if you don't get that right, and if you don't get uh, you know, the basic flow, then everything else is going to be is going to be faulty because you failed yeah. to do. And the, you try the, to get a yeah. sermon or a lesson or something and impose it on a text right. instead of it should be the reverse that. Um, your sermon or your lesson should just flow out of the text. It should be that opposite way. Yeah. So you're reading it. What else are you doing? Yeah. So after I read the text, then that's when I'm going to start making you know more detailed observations. So I'm going to look for repeated words. When is something mentioned more than mm-hmm. once? Um, and then I'm going to ask the question, why is this passage within the book? How does it contribute to the argument as a whole? Um, and I want to get kind of the thought process of the author. And that's where reading the entire book comes mm-hmm. in hand because mm-hmm. now when you get to the step of figuring out how does, let's say, for instance, Romans 9 fit into the entirety of Romans. We know right. that Paul, you know, for eight chapters was explaining what the gospel was. He kind of hit a crescendo at the end of chapter 8. Uh, and then in chapter 9, he says that he's filled with anguish. Why is he filled with anguish? Mm-hmm. He just got done talking about the glories and the wonders and the victory of the gospel. So, Something happened. So how in the world does Israel fit into this picture of salvation? Exactly. Chapters and, 9 through 11. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so understanding that, you know, Paul's whole point in 9 is that God's word hasn't failed simply because some ethnic Jews disbelieve because not everybody who is an ethnic Israelite mm-hmm. is a child of promise. Yeah. That's you know, the whole you, know, point. you know, what's amazing too with that portion of scripture is if you were going to show somebody how to be saved, most likely you would end up in Romans chapter number 10. And Paul is telling people in Romans chapter number 10, I like to read verses nine through verse number 13. Um, you know, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And uh, we, we, you know, tell people, you believe in your heart, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, that believe, in your, believe in your heart, you shall be saved. And you believe, you know, and then you go down through the... But that, that portion of scripture has to do specifically about the Jews. It applies to us, but it's spoken specifically about the Jews. Yeah, I mean... We often think about Romans as the book about justification by faith, Mm -hmm. and that's a major theme. But a lot of people miss the fact that I think the overarching purpose of Romans is to show that, you know, both Jews and Gentiles are part of the church. Mm -hmm. So in chapter one, he says not to the Jew only, but also to the Greek. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the book, he says it again. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah, he's, absolutely. He's two bookends where he's talking about yeah, the Ro- unity. And uh, Romans 1 talks about the wickedness of the Gentiles. They don't want to retain the knowledge of God in their mind. And then in Romans chapter number 2, he talks about the self-righteous Jews and um yeah, who you know? Who art thou? Um, you know, does thou commit adultery? Does that, you know? He's like, you're guilty as the Gentiles are. He condemns the Jews in Romans chapter number two. And yeah, 
And so the only way that you would really get that is you'd have to read through that book several times. And uh, and then if you did teach Romans chapter number nine, it'd be so much more beneficial because you see how it fits into the broader scope of the book. And so probably while you're reading this, you're probably, you know, you're reading that text, you are um, writing down observations, taking notes. If you got that wide, you got that wide margin text, you can be underlining key words there in the book and kind of coming up with um, what we call in Bible college the CIT. You guys, did you guys do the CIT? Central idea of the text. <laughs> yeah, well, that would have been like the uh, similar to the melodic line idea. Okay, okay. But yeah, the central idea of the text, yeah. I like that. It's, yeah. it's a lot catchier than some of the stuff that I've heard. So okay, I'll yeah. go with that. Yeah, and you know, after you get the CIT, you would get the homiletical idea, and that's how you know it's going to flesh out how you know how it's going to minister to the congregation or to um, your Sunday school class as you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you can show the audience um, like the flow of thought that the author has, Mm -hmm. everything begins to make sense to them. Um, If you can just explain, you know, what Paul means when he says, um, you know, someone will say, X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. um, but then he'll refute that argument. Uh, so he's anticipating his reader's objection. So if we're asking a question about, say, for instance, God's you know, um, uh, righteousness in Romans chapter 9, well, Paul raises that objection himself because he knows that his audience is right. going to be wondering it. Yeah, yeah. So he answers the objection for and us. And if you're saved by faith, does faith do away with the law? Right. God forbid the faith establishes the law. You know, so he's constantly like a lawyer in the courtroom. He's anticipating the conflict yeah. that the audience is going to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's really quite the uh, quite the author, quite... Um, you know, the arguer. Um, so I think we can learn a lot from Paul in evangelism as Amen. well. Yeah, Apologize. absolutely. How he handles that. And, uh, you know, and again, there, there's another thought off of the text. Look at what Paul's doing here. How would this, how would this sound if you were talking to your friend or to your neighbor about the gospel and how would, you know, look at how Paul answered this or answered that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so we're winding our way down. It's almost, it's almost Sunday D day. With the Sunday school lesson. So what are we what are we doing towards the end of the week? Yeah. So I mean once you've, you know, read the passage and you've made your observations and you've gotten some sort of flow of thought, yeah, maybe now is a good time to come up with some sort of a homiletical outline. You know, just write out uh, maybe the points that you want to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be careful not to try to impose some sort of fancy outline in a text where it doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. I just like to go with the flow of thought. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna say, you know, Paul's anguish for the Jews, you know, and then, um, you know, has God's word failed? And I'm just going to start asking questions like that. I want to follow the, the flow of the actual text. I don't want to take just five points that are, you know, start with the same alliteration. <laughs> I'm not uh-huh. a big fan of that. Uh-huh. If it works, great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did a message one time that was thematic, you know, just talking about the seed promise, but I kind of did a sketch of like, the, you know, the entire Bible and I had the serpent, the seed and the savior. Yeah. That works. You yeah. can do it yeah. if it fits. Yeah. But if it doesn't fit, then just go with the Yeah, the you already got your theosaurus out and you can't uh, alliterate it. Then, um, yeah, it's tough. So, I mean, now you have your outline 
And, you know, then that's probably when I would start reading commentaries, Mm -hmm. you know, see, you know, what did I overlook? Because, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. If you, um, and then if you, if you skip the commentaries first, you're going to do on yourself a real disservice and disadvantage. And, and, um, yeah, that should be more, more towards the end, more of a last resort. And then it's, um, you know, and so people need to read if they, uh, if they have problem with commentaries, they they need to read uh, Charles Hedden Spurgeon's commentary, uh, commenting on commentaries, uh, and he really goes to say that you know if people they don't want to look at commentaries at all because they want everything to be directly from the Holy Spirit, uh, he essentially says they're they're proud fools because who in the world do they think that they're the only person the Holy Spirit could speak to? Um, you know, at the same time, you don't want to take a man's word for it is you want to see that for yourself. And so that's why I think that you should study the Bible first. Um, just going through there, defining common themes, melodic rhythm, um, defining words, writing down thoughts. And then even if you're um, thinking ahead of time about an illustration or whatever that would help explain this verse. You know, you can write these things out. And then, yeah, last of all, just getting some good commentaries and reading through commentaries. And a lot of these these guys uh, that write these things, and there's different ones that are uh, more devotional, more um, like, you know, you, you out of Grace Community, MacArthur's is going to be more, um, and I do have his whole set. It's going to be uh, like a preacher's, commentary because he's preaching through that uh if you you can have highly devotional ones uh warren wearsby's highly devotional you can get some good stuff out of that i know my mom and dad love wearsby stuff mine wearsby up on the um the uh right behind you menace wore out like the, the um it's taped up and everything else and then um standard matthew henry uh i've got uh, jay Vernon mcgee mm-hmm. and that's really his radio broadcast Word for word. Yes. He even says, my friends, you know. Man, there, boys. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Yeah. But it's a transcript. Uh, see, see, yeah, yeah. So if you if you heard him talking on the radio, uh, you'll be, hear his voice as you read his commentary. But it's uh, some great stuff in there. There's some gems. And so, yeah, it is nice. It, to me, it kind of they're kind of like old friends, like old counselors um, that I can go to, and they can kind of preach to me from the text and and – um, some some great ideas in there. Yeah, so that really helps. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we're not the first ones looking at the text. No. And if we found something new, it's probably heresy. Right, right. And as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Uh, and, they, yeah, the old saying is if, if something is new, it's probably not true. You know, and then if it's true, it's not new. You know, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, so it is nice to look at what other people say and um, and kind of get their advice and counsel, some trusted uh, commentary. And um, so it's Saturday. What are you doing on Saturday? Anything yeah. special? So probably by this time, I've probably already started my manuscript or transcript, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Do you like to write out your sermon? Or? Uh, I don't write it out by hand first, mm-hmm. uh, just because it would take too much time. Mm-hmm. So... The word processor gives me the ability to edit easier yep, rather yep, than yep. throwing out a whole page. I can change one sentence. Yeah. But what I do is after I'm done with my manuscript or transcript, I really want to have this done, you know, Friday night mm-hmm. at the latest, Maybe early so. Saturday. Maybe so. 
because what I do, the last stage is very important to me, which is where I go through my manuscript and I annotate my own notes. Mm -hmm. And I circle key things in my notes. And I get familiar with the way my manuscript is laid out. That way, when I go into the pulpit, it's not like it's the first time I'm looking at it. Right. I'm already familiar <clears throat> where, where certain texts are located on the page. I've already marked things up. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with it. Right. I own my manuscript. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the most important Absolutely. steps for me. And so that, that's why, and I'm the same exact way. My goal is to be done with the outline on Friday, but I might doctor it up a little bit on Saturday. But the goal is Saturday. I'm just re, um, going over the notes and um, getting familiar with them. I'm not adding really anything to it. I am just reviewing it um, and internalizing it. And, um, and then... You know, I'll print it off and underline some circling, some stuff like that. And then I, I know um, I don't practice this. It doesn't always work out perfect. Don't practice this uh, usually. But if you are doing what you're saying and you're writing, you don't have to write the whole thing out. Because, like, let's say if you're going to preach, you're going to preach for 40, 45 minutes. You know how you get some writer's cramps. Um, but if you write out the different transitions – uh, different hard things between points or whatever, it's going to help you so much when you get up there. Like you said, you don't want to just keep on working on this manuscript and then stand up and you're not familiar with it and or you're glued to it and you're a slave to this notes you got in front of you. Yeah, um, I've heard it said, I think it was Steve Lawson was talking one time, he said that your manuscript can either be a major help to you or it can be a major hindrance to you. You know, it can be like a ball and chain mm -hmm. weighing you down mm -hmm. or it can be like a diving board that you can launch off of into yes. your sermon. And I think just finding, you know, what works for you That's right. um, is key because not everybody is going to do their manuscript like John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's going to do it like John Piper. Not everybody's going to do it like us. Yeah, You have to have a system that works for you. And once you find that, then just go with it and get better at it and tweak it. And, uh, and over the years, you know, you just figure out what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And you, um, you know, our, our pastor in Oklahoma City is a great preacher and he did teach our homiletics class. And he said, uh, fellas, you gotta be willing to make a fool of yourself. Uh, if you're going to get good at this thing of preaching, and, you know, he said, I've made a fool of myself many times. It's like exercising. And you, I think you have to be willing to adjust and grow with uh, yourself. And you have, you're in different stages of life. And um, and so there, there's sometimes why, you you know, you might lean heavy on the manuscript. I've always had a hard time. Um, like if I brought a bunch of notes to the pulpit, I, it, it messes me up. Um, and so I do, if I have like a lot of manuscript, I will shrink it down and then I highlight, and you can do this in Microsoft Word, I'll highlight a couple of words so I I know what I'm supposed to cover and the paragraph is there. But I just highlighted, um, let's say if it's an illustration about John Bunyan or something, you know, I'm going to highlight John Bunyan. Or if it's a, a paragraph where I'm, I, I want to articulate something well, I'll get familiar with that paragraph and then I'll shrink it and then I'll highlight keywords in that paragraph so I can look at it when I'm out there preaching and I can look back at the folks and I know where I'm at. And so I like personally, again, everyone's different. I like personally to have 
my notes and kind of stick to them as guideposts along the way. I definitely want my notes up there with me, uh, but I don't want to feel like I'm reading a manuscript or because once you start looking down too much, everybody in the auditorium starts looking down as well. And it, it, it's hard. So and it's a learning process. It's true. Um, definitely people follow your lead, you know, when you're up there because it's like a conversation that you're having with the audience. And I've gone into the pulpit before with 20 plus typed notes, but oftentimes what I'll do is I'll put the, the biblical text right in my notes as well. Mm-hmm. And I'll embolden it and I'll circle key things. That way everything is right there in my binder. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not, you know, fiddling around trying to figure out where things are. Everything is right there. It's all sequential. Uh, but yeah, like you say, I'm not reading it word for word. Mm-hmm. It's more like a teleprompter where you're kind of using it as, you know, a talking point. Sure. That you can kind of glance down at. And I, I'm not bound to say it a certain way. I just know what I'm trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. And as long as I communicate that clearly, even if it's phrased differently in my manuscript, that's not a big deal. It's like you say, they're like guideposts leading you from beginning to end. And you want your notes clear because you can't, um, you know, the old expression is a short pencil is better than a long memory. Um, so just in case you get up there and every once in a while um, your brain doesn't work properly and you need to lean heavier than usual on your notes and um, then, you know, don't take it for granted that, you know, tonight's going to be your night and you're going to remember everything you're supposed to say. <laughs> Just you have that as security, your safety mm-hmm. net up there, your notes. And then also I would add too is whether you're teaching a Sunday school lesson or preaching a series or whatever, be kind to your future self, meaning this, take good notes. Like we're talking about writing, you know, taking notes in your Bible Um you got to be able to go back later on and second time through your Bible reading, you're like, no, what in the world you wrote in the margin of your Bible. Uh, but also if you take good notes, like when I first started, it would be like illustration story about the boy. <laughs> well, a month from now, I'm not going to know what the story about the boy is. So what I would do now is type an abbreviated summary of the, of the whole story out even though I'm going to remember it and I will shrink it down, even if it's number 10 font or eight, even if it's really big, I need to shrink it down, but I'll have it in my notes later. And then if you're, let's say you're doing um, a portion of scripture about the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, you think that's the only time in scripture, like if you're in, um, uh, you know, first John, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And you think that's the first and last time you're going to be speaking about the blood of Christ, you know, in your Christian ministry. Now you're going to come across the importance of the blood of Christ later on. And and if you took good notes when you were going through first John, uh, you know, whether you're in Colossians or some other book of the Bible, you can go back and look at your old notes and be kind to your future self. So down the road, you'll have good reference point. You can look back and uh, be kind to yourself. Oh, yeah. I always keep in mind, and I always want to be able to take a manuscript two years down the road. And if somebody asked me to preach, I could pull out that manuscript and preach it. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't be as fresh on my mind. You'd have to restudy the whole thing. Read it a few times, um, You know, annotate it, 
mark it up. Uh, it's almost, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, almost like, you know, warming it up. Yeah. Um, so you can use it. And uh, at times it works well. And at times, you know, that sermon comes out completely different because you're Absolutely. talking to a different audience. You're a different person too. Yeah, you've grown. Yeah. Um, you say things differently than you would have originally. You've talked to different people. Mm-hmm. You've thought through these things. So sometimes it can be an enriching experience because you can see your own personal growth in it. So I yeah. like going back and re-preaching yeah. sermons. Yeah. And then uh, like on Sunday night, again, we're doing the Ten Commandments right now. Um, and so are the Ten Commandments important to the Bible overall? Yes. I mean, it is the, it's the peg which all, all other uh, precepts are hung on. Uh, and so we're going to come across the themes of all those Ten Commandments. So, you know, later on, uh, you know, where it says um, covetousness, which is as idolatry. Well, I, I did a whole sermon on covetousness because number 10 is thou shalt not covet. And um, so I can, if I'm preaching, where's that at anyway? I don't know. But anyway, it's in, it's in one of the epistles. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Yeah. You guys out there in Radio Land can look that up later, um, but uh, but yeah. So if I'm coming across that verse and I'm preaching through that area, I can reference other pl- other places where. And the, the thing is, um, if you've preached through something or if you've taken notes on a Bible study for yourself, you are unique as unto yourself. So when you when you take notes or write s- sermons or 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 lessons. For yourself, you will understand your own material very well, or you might not understand somebody else's better. So, um, if I have material on covetousness, it's going to be more helpful than me looking it up in a Bible encyclopedia or or something else or some commentary. It's actually it's going to be helpful to me. So, yeah, take good notes. Be kind to your future self. Yeah, I would say so. And. Sometimes I'll even uh, add footnotes on the word processor and I'll keep track of, you know, what sources I use. Nice. So, you know, like you say, three years down the road, mm-hmm. I can say, okay, if I want to preach First Peter 1 again, here are the five or six commentaries that I obviously used when I mm-hmm. preached this sermon. I'll pull them out again. Yeah. It saves me because I have the page number. I have everything. Nice. Yeah, that's, that is very good. That is very good. Yeah, and so I, I will um, I'll use source material. If you have Kindle... And you use any Kindle books, um, which on MacBook, I can pull my Kindle stuff up on there. But you copy and paste into your notes, it will f- it will give you the um, notcha- notation mm-hmm. right in the yeah. paste. It's done. Very nice. So, yeah, modern technology is great. Well, any, any last thoughts? Yeah, I would just say, you know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is just, you know, make it clear to whoever we're speaking to. Um, the meaning of the text uh, and the significance of the text and then how to live out the principles in the text, you know, Mm -hmm. learn who God is. He's the same as uh, he was 2000 years ago. He Mm -hmm. hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Bible is sufficient for, you know, living a godly life and knowing uh, what we need to know about Christ in order to be saved. And uh, it uh, it's life. So yeah. I would say yeah. just understanding Bible study, whether it's personal or for an audience, that it has to be a spiritual pursuit first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you can use academics in a spiritual way, but they can't be divorced from one another. 
Otherwise, and, and then when just, you're yeah, yeah, and then when you're preaching, it shouldn't come across academically either. There is an academic aspect, and there is a precision, mm-hmm. uh, and there is a systematology to it. Uh, when it comes right down to it, what does it mean to um, the single mom? Yeah, what's she supposed to do with that? Um, the guy who lost his job because of COVID. Right. What's what's his takeaway? Um, yes, and what does it mean to the preschooler? Uh, when you're in third grade, what in the world, uh, you know, what in the world is this, how is this going to impact my life? If I'm in the third grade, you know? Um, so yeah, bringing it right back, you know, where we started with about that spiritual personal application of the text, which is key is vital. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Spurgeon said it well, uh, when he talked about putting the cookies on the bottom of the shelf mm-hmm. where everybody can get them. Yes, and, and remember, yeah. with Christ, the common man heard him gladly. And what was his most common question, it seemed, was, have you not read? Yes. Uh, you know, it was just simple to him. Yeah. You know, have you not read? Yeah. Uh, he didn't say, you know, have you not, uh, you know, read your many commentaries or whatever. And, you know, Sunday, um, we're going to be in Luke chapter number 18. One of these years, I'll be done preaching through Luke on Sunday mornings, but I'm enjoying it as I'm going along. Uh, but Luke 18 is the um, the 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 what is it? The the uh, importune prayer is the lady who's in the unjust judge, uh, and so she continually goes to him. Now God is not an unjust judge, but there is that uh, persistence in prayer, and then. Then we're going to handle the paragraph. I'm trying to get done with Luke, so I'm jumping from you know one paragraph to the next. The next is the publican and the Pharisee in the temple praying, and the publican says, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then um, the Lord says, suffer. Then after that, the paragraph after that is, suffer the little children to come unto me. Uh, and so I think the outline is going to be something like coming to God as a beggar, because that's what that lady does continuously as a beggar pastoring this unjust judge. Now, we don't pastor God, but there is a principle of prayer and repeating what is on our heart. Not vain repetition, but continually going to God. So you come to God as a beggar. You come to God as a sinner. That's what the publican did. God have mercy upon me as a sinner, and he went out justified. And then you come to God as a child. Simple, right there. Um, And so... There's a you know there's a simplicity and a humility uh, that Christ was trying to teach, and that's why Christ, of course, is God and He wrote the Bible. <laughs> but <laughs> have you never read? It's like I have expressed this stuff to you in writing, uh, you know. And so it was they they somehow got in this hoity-toity high you know reasoning where they couldn't even see the scripture in front of their very own face, you know? Yeah. There has to be a balance between simplicity and then the complexity Mm -hmm. because the scriptures are complex. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they have a literary structure. There are chiasms. There are uh, all sorts of things like that in the Bible, but it's simplistic as Mm -hmm. well. Um, So we shouldn't forget and we shouldn't overcomplicate what's not supposed to be. Yeah. Overcomplicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's end there. Well, hey, thank you everybody for listening today. And uh, please please, uh, like, share, subscribe to this channel. If you want to find out more about this podcast, you go to pastoralthoughts.org. And thank you so much, Brother Silas, for being on uh, the show today. And um,